It's time to air out the dirty laundry. Let's talk about the human side of public shaming. Those raw, messy, I fucked up stories that call into question the court of public opinion, our lack of empathy and compassion, the obsessive desire for celebrity gossip, and mob mentality of guilty until proven innocent. I'm Tam McLaughlin, and this is Dirty Laundry. Blake, thank you for joining me. You're my first podcast guest. You know, I kind of just tripped over my words there because I wasn't quite sure how to introduce a podcast guest. It's my first time doing so. But thank you for being here and taking the time. I'm honored. Thank you for having me. So this has been, I guess, a long time coming for me personally. I've, uh, I've had this kind of little creative project in the back of my mind. And, you know, as you and I were discussing last week, I thought you'd make the perfect first guest kind of given our relationship and our uh, our history. We've known each other since since high school. So I guess maybe, you know, let's bring people up to speed with what you're doing right now, and then we'll kind of dig into uh, to our background. Sure. So uh, I'm a Raptors reporter for The Athletic, which means I, I cover the Toronto Raptors uh, pretty much every day. You know, in normal times, I, I'd be around the team all the time at games, at practices, sometimes on the road. Uh, right now, everything's just done over Zoom. But watch team, write about the team, host a podcast about the team. I have a music podcast called Columbia House Party. Yeah, just kind of, I mean, mostly just a Raptors guy at this point. It, when I was, it was a much more interesting description when I was freelance full time because I was doing everything everywhere. But it's a lot easier now. Yeah, you certainly worked your way up, like specifically on the Raptors scene. And, you know, when I was kind of going through what I wanted to talk about today, I, I initially went back to like the on deck circle blog that we were doing in high school. And that was really your baby. And to see like your progression and growth, like since that time is incredible. And especially over, you know, the peer, this period. So, I mean, like, let's talk about the on deck circle. Where did this dream come from? And was it always like basketball and Raptors? No. Um, so I think the on deck circle, you might've still been in high school. I was in university and I just like, I started it. I think I wrote like a March Madness thing and put it on Facebook and people enjoyed it. And I was like, ah, that was fun to do. I'll do a little bit more of it. Um, but it was always just like a side thing just for fun. Because um, like I was about to, you know, I was gone to Queens to get a business degree and I was going to, you know, I was enrolled in law school at one point. And, and so it was just like a side hobby. Uh, but it wasn't until about 2012 when I had like blogged for fun for a little bit that I was like, uh, oh, law school sounds not great. And I don't like my office job that much. So <laughs> um, kind of tried to do it from there. So it hasn't always been Raptors. I think when in 2012, when I went to UBC to do a master's of journalism, it was like, you know, maybe 40, 40, 20 basketball, baseball, hockey. Yeah. Uh, and I would have been cool with any of that. Obviously in, in Canada, the hockey market's a lot more saturated. Uh, so you have a clearer path to kind of standing out on basketball or baseball. And then when I was at UBC, uh, there, I, I covered women's hockey and then women's rugby and both men's and women's basketball. And then the score hired me because they liked that I could do a little bit of everything. And then almost right away, it was like, okay, you're our basketball guy. Uh, so it did mix up a lot from there. Yeah. But I guess like always sports then, um, but then just with the yeah. focus on basketball coming later. Yeah, exactly. So um, a little bit of everything, you know, kind of a focus on analytics and explaining things, kind of taking complex stuff and explaining that in really simple ways. What's your, I guess, passion behind that? Was that like to do with the business and law, incorporating a little bit of that? Um, like the business and law comes in a little bit with like collective bargaining and stuff and, and like the salary cap. But 
for the most part, it's, you know, I don't know. I just enjoy that and find it interesting. And, and like, I think there's the industry as a whole has a gap between what is going on on the, the team and league side and what people understand. And, and that gap is a communication gap. So that's where I try to kind of fill fill in or, or connect yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one side to the other. Yeah, absolutely. I want to go back to the Omdex circle for a quick second, because I feel like that was such a, a memorable, like fun thing to do. And I was just trying to think of some of the stories that I wrote and maybe some of the stories that you wrote. And I just, I'm thinking back and, oh my God, there's something so nice about having like creative freedom. We were writing anything that we wanted and it was so fun and just coming from a place of pure passion. Do you remember any of your stories? Yeah, I've gone back and looked at them over time and they're not well written. And it's like, like at one point, like clearly trying to be like a fourth rate Bill Simmons and, <laughs> and like it's, um, but you know, and, and this is advice I give young writers now is like, you have to, you have to kind of give yourself that room to figure out, I mean, to get better one, but also to figure out like, if you are going to be a writer, what kind of writer are you going to be? Yeah. And I learned pretty quickly, like, I'm not that funny. I'm not that clever. <laughs> I better, I better stick to the main stuff. So, and, and there's some funny stuff. Like, so the website's not there anymore, but like, I, I remember people wrote some truly bizarre things. You know, like, I know it's not there because I had some articles linked to my old Tumblr account, which believe it or not is still active. Wow. And, uh, but when you click on the link on Tumblr, it's a dead link. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned though, like allowing yourself the freedom to explore that because you don't, you can't find your voice right away. And I, yeah, I absolutely cringe at any, any writing or any video stuff I did back then. But you know, there's two things like at the time we were using the skill we had and the technology we had. So I think we were doing pretty good with what we had. And then, you know, when you're young and you're just exactly to your point of figuring out your voice, I think you almost should, I think, I don't know if you'd agree or not, but you almost should cringe in a way at the stuff that you used to do because it means you're growing. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think, you know, obviously it can't be as structured as this because of the economics of the industry, but, you know, the, the baseball and hockey uh, prospect models like make a lot of sense, right? Like you start off writing down here and you have a smaller audience and it's lower risk and lower leverage. And then you move up and like, you know, I spent a lot of time covering the G League and getting my my reps in like at uh, U Sports games and G League games because like I wasn't very good at interviewing people or or because I had kind of stuck to the analysis, I wasn't very good at like telling the human side of stories. And you need you need practice to do that. Or there are people who are really naturally good at it, but if they wanted to come over and do the hard analysis stuff, they would need practice at it. So at Raptors Republic, I, I've run that forever and, and you know kind of now I'm, I'm just kind of in a coaching role basically there and help out where where time allows um, but that's always a thing that's hard to communicate to people is that like it's cool to be excited and want to start out and jump in but like the first step is probably making your own medium page or wordpress page yeah, and like yeah. getting some reps in where like only your friends see it because yeah. i'm very thankful that <laughs> only my friends saw some of the first stuff that i wrote yeah, and not wanting to, to publish like on a national publication straight up yeah. is a good idea. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of pressure. And, and I think in this industry, it's such a such a shaky job market that you're going to have to have so, some real perseverance anyway. But I do think that, you know, if you jump too quickly into the, the deep end of things, like there's a real potential to get discouraged if like, you know, thrive immediately or your work does need some 
some improvement or whatever. So the methodical approach of wasting four or five years figuring out <laughs> if I wanted to do it worked just great for me. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I want to, I guess, dig a little bit more into how you've evolved your like interviewing on the human side. Cause I, I can see that you've done that, but I think first it might be good to explain, I guess, what even dirty laundry is, what I'm trying to accomplish yeah. with this podcast and sort of set the stage, I guess, for our conversation. And we're, we're going to talk about uh, your work with the raps a little bit more. So dirty laundry. Yeah. I've been a passion project that's been on the back burner for so long. And uh, I have to thank you in a sense for, I guess, pushing it over the finish line here and being, <laughs> being the first guest. But I want to talk about the, the human side of public shaming, but it doesn't necessarily have to be isolated incidents of shaming, but I guess uh, sort of the bigger picture thinking and where you fit in here nicely as a reporter is you're responsible for sharing some of these stories and some of them can be controversial. You know, where I used to be a reporter now I'm on the other side of PR and, you know, might be working with reporters to make sure that their stories are, are shared accurately while kind of playing this sort of delicate dance of like allowing you to do your job ethically and, and, and soundly and objectively while also, you know, trying to promote like my client's message. So I guess, yeah, with, with Dirty Laundry, it's being able to share those stories, hear different perspectives. Everything we do on, is online now, right? And so, you know, the idea of getting shamed or canceled or, and we can dig into what exactly those even mean later, but it's so prominent now and documented sort of in real time online. So I think just, you know, opening up the dialogue about it and less polarizing conversations like technically we're on other sides of the aisle right now but we're having a discussion and, and engaging in this so I think just even making that first step and putting it out there and not having the answers like I don't have the answers and I'm not expecting anyone else to but just yeah starting that that communication so yeah and I think you know cancellation is such a funny word this last little while where like especially because in almost every one of these cases no one is actually being canceled like they're not it's really just accountability. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's, that's important. And, and I think, you know, where, while you and I ha have disagreed on some of the specifics in the past, um, you know, and, and I, I know you've read the, the Ronson book, so you've been publicly shamed yeah. and um, Big reference point for me always. Yeah. <laughs> and, and obviously, you know, I, I have to live on Twitter for my job. So I see a bunch of this stuff all the time of like, you know, people with bad or offensive takes getting dunked on and like some of that's performative. And I think, you know, there are two kind of wrinkles to the cancellation stuff that need kind of fine tuning like in the macro. And one is that I think people, you know, shouldn't jump to the, oh, it's just cancel culture because it's not. It, it's right. in a lot of cases, you're just being held accountable. And if yeah. like, yeah, sometimes if it was 10 years ago and, and someone finds your old tweets, like that's, that really sucks. And you've grown since then, you know, it's the other thing is that there should probably be room for rehabilitation and, and learning. And, you know, in some cases, restorative justice, that, depending on the severity of what we're talking about. But yeah, I, so I think we're, we're in this weird spot where it's gotten very polarized and it's, well, all you want to do is cancel everyone. And all you want to do is have absolutely no accountability yeah. for what you say and do. Yeah. And there's a, there's a wide middle ground there where like, we should hold people accountable and, you know, I should be responsible for it if I tweet something dumb or offensive, but also like should maybe not be the end of my life, depending on what the specifics are. 
Um, you know, obviously there are some cases where you can't, <laughs> there are some opinions and actions that I don't think you can be rehabilitated from necessarily, but yeah, so that's where I'm at it. And that's why I was happy to come on it. And cause I know, you know, your, your plan for this is to kind of explore that and different examples of people who have on any end of that spectrum been canceled or miss taken missteps and how they restored themselves and their brands. And what I'm most interested in is, you know, the paths that your guests are going to have taken to, yeah. um, you know, show the necessary steps to, to kind of earn that rehabilitation. And you made such a, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of cancel culture has become this catch-all term for things that my definition after having dis- these discussions with people is I've come to understand that maybe my definition of what is considered cancel culture does it isn't the same as somebody else's. And now it's, you know, anybody being called out for doing something wrong is I was canceled. Well, no, I completely agree to your point that there is such a thing as accountability. And I think where I might differ a little bit from the popular opinion on that is that I don't necessarily think public shaming is accountability. So that's kind of where my personal differentiator is. I think, you know, I don't know why the first thing we do when we hold people accountable is get online and, you know, you know, write it all over the internet. And that's where it becomes performative because people are making these apologies that are, you know, so baseless and meaningless, as opposed to, I really think that it would be helpful to go straight to the person that's, in some cases, I know that's not always possible, but trying a little bit more to have these conversations offline and have more of a dialogue around them as opposed to spitting it all out online. Yeah, litigating it on Twitter, right, is, and and it's tough because I know that there is that, obviously, an instant reactionary element to Twitter, and that's, that's helpful for some things. Like, it, it disseminates news fast. Um, it brings awareness to, to something that someone may not have been aware of. Otherwise, you know, you might read person X and have no idea that they have this awful opinion or, or wrote this terrible thing. And it's good to know. And we've run into this all the time on, on sports Twitter. And that stuff is obviously, you know, the leverage there, the importance of it is much smaller. But you have these couple of characters on NBA Twitter where everyone knows they have bad takes and everyone knows they're jerks. But every time they tweet something dumb, my timeline is just like everyone quote retweeting it and dunking yeah, on it. Yeah, and then it's it like, goes viral, which is just pushing. Yeah, and, and like at that point, yeah. you're just giving them a platform. You're, you're, exactly. you know, it, it's good to, it's good to keep people aware and, and it's good to hold people accountable. But there, you know, there are certainly instances where it's either, like you said, performative or, you know, even worse than that. You know, it's giving oxygen to something that does not need oxygen and it's signal boosting. Um, this bad stuff. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's an element of my job that I think I might view a bit differently because of our work with like SEO and PR and that kind of stuff. But just this, in in some cases, there's a lack of knowledge of that, like adding to that conversation and trying to hold people accountable that way actually sometimes backfires in that you are giving them more of a platform. SEO doesn't, you know, say, oh, they said something good or bad. It just, it's, it just sees that you've talked about this keyword period, which then boosts it up even higher, right. giving them more of a voice, more of a platform. And so it's like, well, then you get people that are just poking the bear because they want to go viral because, and it, everyone loses them. And there's people like that in every industry, I'm sure. But like sports is the, is the worst <laughs> of it. Like there's a, there's a national columnist here in Canada who, wrote a like a silly awful thing uh, about one of the Toronto Maple Leafs this week and it was like on the cover and then what happened was 
everyone was tweeting about it for a day and the broadcast spent the entire first period talking about it. And that's exactly what that person wanted. Now, like the clicks roll in, the the hate, you know, hate reading is a real thing and you can't like build your entire brand on it, but you, you can give it a shot in the arm. I think that all, and this is what I tell people, maybe the only way to truly hurt someone's like brand on the internet is to completely ignore them. Like from a sheerly, I guess that's a technical perspective, but to not click on their articles, to not engage with them, to not give them that like extra like rocket fuel of like social media boost. And then, you know, when the articles get clicked on less, the publication pays attention because they're not making as much money. So I think, you know, that too, I guess is another point, I guess I would say that I make in terms of bringing cancellation, you know, offline and not so much shaming because it's like it technically is not even really working as effectively as one might think it is. Yeah, I mean, depending on the case, right? Like if you're, uh, you know, obviously if it dominates your SEO so much, like like Twitter, if it's contained to Twitter, it might actually just help you. But it's probably once, you know, things start getting aggregated, like especially if you're a public figure, once articles start getting written and then you have headlines and stuff like that, and then it messes your whole, yeah, you know, yeah. SEO up. Um, yeah, that's definitely a factor. But yeah, and, and that's where, you know, I to kind of pivot us to the stuff you want to talk about with my role is like, yeah. obviously Twitter is a part of my job and, and Twitter is honestly, for the most part, the the news side of my job. Like I, all of my writing at The Athletic is behind a paywall and they pay my salary, but it's understood in my industry that a part of the job is Twitter and is news in general. And there's no, you know, there's no good way to monetize that. Like Everyone, like like we've talked about, no matter the the subject matter, everyone will be tweeting about it. So to yeah. hide that on your app, you're not going to drive anyone to it that way. But when it comes to these sensitive things, it can get complicated because you are kind of expected to have not necessarily an immediate take, but provide the news immediately. And, and obviously, journalistically, you want to vet that news as thoroughly as possible, and you want to be as respectful of all sides as possible. But there are sometimes that you know, the immediacy of something kind of outstrips what you can do. And I know your your point earlier about, you know, taking it offline, like there are a lot of times where, you know, we have to jump through hoops to get a player or a coach or, or an organizational comment, and that's not possible. And, you know, you have a news, you have a, a readership to, to serve with this news. So, you know, there are always, I'm, I'm, I certainly don't tee that up to be like, well, you have to tweet about it. Well, no, I think it's a very important part of your job. And I think as a reporter, you have a much different role there in like telling these stories and sharing the facts, but also like reconciling that with like having to have an opinion. Yeah. That was an interesting point there as well. How do you approach that and just like being objective about it while also staying like true to what you value and, and your approach? Yeah, it's tough. So, you know, there, there are some rules of thumb and we have some internal guidelines for stuff like this when it comes to legal or, or sensitive family matters. And, you know, you got to check this box or this box before, um, you know, we don't have like a firm social media policy necessarily that says like, hey, you can't tweet about this news, but I'm not going to include it in an article and I'm not going to tweet something inflammatory until, you know, you could check a certain couple of boxes. Like every, you know, if it's a legal matter, every state court makes their stuff available online. Like that's not, it takes a bit, but you can, you know, you can, uh, whether it's with LexisNexis or just public court searches, like you can verify some information fairly quickly. The other thing is to, you know, once other news outlets pick it up, even if they're, you know, say there's a, an outlet that has a lower journalistic standard than we have. Well, once those outlets pick it up, it kind of, 
and this is such a backwards way to do it, but it almost escalates the newsworthiness of the situation because- You know what? It's so interesting that you say that because I, I think about this a lot and, and you know, you would be the first person to understand this is when I had a freelance gig out West as a news reporter, when I was doing sort of my sports reporting, I also had a, a, a news gig. And at the publication I was at, it's an awful one. There was, uh, it was part of, it was the rules that if there was a, like a car accident, a death, like anything, we had to be the first on the scene and the article had to go up like within the hour, like aiming for like 15 to 30 minutes or like just this ridiculous time frame after this had happened and like being encouraged to like go like straight and interview like, you know, widows or people that are going through these like heavy things. And so I felt like I wasn't able to, accurately collect all this information while also respecting the fact that these people are going through something really traumatic. Um, and then, yeah, putting the story up there, being first to report. And then you see all the other news outlets basically getting their facts from this article that I don't even feel confident about. And yeah, to your point of then it just speeds up the whole process of having to get, you know, first, first out. Yeah. And thankfully, you know, I work at a place and, and I handle my own Twitter where you know, being first is not all that important to me. Um, you know, I, especially when it comes to sensitive stuff, like being wrong is a way bigger detriment than being second, yeah. Um, yeah. especially when it comes to deaths or legal matters or like sensitive family matters. Like it's one thing if I hustle to be first on like this guy signs a contract and it ends up that that contract falls through, like it's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. But if you make that, if you kind of have that same misstep with a sensitive topic, you know, you're affecting people's lives and people's opinions. And so I, I'm very fortunate to be in a in a spot where, you know, I don't feel that urgency, you know, I, I can take the time to. So there was an example recently uh, in the off season where a Raptor was charged with seven counts of assault um, from this domestic situation. And I woke up and there was a, I want to say it was New York Post that had a headline up about it. I'm in a position where I could take the time, I could email the team for a statement, I could search the the New York court databases to, to see what's up. And then, you know, by the time I took to Twitter, you know, an article obviously takes a, a much longer time, it has to go through sensitive content editing. And, you know, we have experts on staff who handle that stuff full time. But even just for Twitter, I could take the time to be like, okay, the team has said they're aware of it. And here's their statement. And here's what I was able to find you know, looking, looking around on, on the court resources. Um, whereas that took place in New York, if you're a New York crime reporter, and it comes across the scanner that someone, you know, even with the same name as an NBA player, yeah. got charged with this and that, like, you probably don't get to do that, because your entire beat is turning that scanner chatter into articles. So yeah. now in this case, you know, I, whether it was the New York Post or wherever it was, they were accurate. But I'm sure there have been instances where that urgency leads to inaccuracy. So again, I, I'm thankful that I don't have to, you know. I think the, uh, you know, the athletic has done a really great job of that. And they were pretty ahead of their time in like, you know, being able to monetize sort of the, the dying, if you want to call it that, like newspaper industry and being able to, they're really one of the only, if I want to make that bold statement, ones that have done the paywall correctly, where people are like, they want to pay for it. They want to sign up. It's very infrequently that I'll see someone complaining about like having to pay for an athletic article because people want to and they follow Hopefully. you guys as writers very passionately. 
So I, I have only good things to say about that like publication. I think you guys do an honestly a great job with it. And what that allows for too is like, you know, we'll, we'll see how the model looks long-term and stuff, but when it's like a subscription model, you're not clicks driven, right? Like yeah. you don't have to, you know, look, the, the first reason to handle those sorts of stories sensitively is because ethically and, and like in terms of journalistic integrity, like the, that's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, that layer of like, there's an economic aspect for some news outlets where, you know, we'll use TMZ, but I, when I say TMZ, I, I am broadly meaning like yeah. those type of sites that they live off of click volume and impressions and stuff like that, where even if something's flimsy and the actual body of the story is like dot, 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 question mark. It's like clickbait. Exactly. Yeah. And clickbait is a real term. I don't know if it's actively a strategy, but it certainly appears to be a strategy for some I places. I see it so, a lot in my line of work too. So yeah, I, yeah absolutely. So you know, it's it's nice to not have to to worry about that stuff. And I, I don't, yeah, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that like the athletic has never misstepped, you know, ethically or anything like that. It's just the setup that I personally am in, you know, takes away a lot of those areas that I think, or, or a lot of those spaces for misstepping with urgency or, or inaccuracy. You know, I'm very fortunate in, in that regard. I remember when I worked at the score, you know, the score is not behind a paywall and it is a news service first. You know, that's when when the Donald Sterling saga was happening with the Clippers and, and he was being ousted as an owner for all of these uh, racial accusations that, you know, he got removed as an owner. It turned out to be pretty accurate. But that was a whole process where I was kind of like a one person news desk on that beat to myself. And that was, you know, that was way more stressful because at the score, you know, we didn't have a sensitive content team or a, you know, a legal team to, to kind of eyes over everything. It was just like my own judgment, great learning experience for me. Um, but, you know, I can certainly empathize with how someone at, at a site that, you know, is set up a little differently might, might misstep or, or trip up on just the sensitivity and the, the volume of things coming at you in cases like that. So the, uh, the domestic assault case, let's go back to that because I know that's, that's fairly recent, but without necessarily digging into the specifics too much, how was that, I guess, like as a reporter, as a man, like just as a person and, and emotionally and like, how did you go about that? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, like, obviously, as a man in sports, it's it's way less tough for me than any number of women in sports or in a, especially people of color, like like the the demographics of the industry are really tilted toward my comfort. So I, I recognize that, obviously. You've done um, a great, just a sidebar, you've done a great job in like bringing attention to, to issues like that. So I, you know, I think that's... I hope so. Um, you know, I don't have hiring power with where I am in my career right now, but, um, you know, pointing that stuff out is important. And I think, you know, this is one of the instances where the gender dynamics in the industry are really obvious, where you know, there's a, a domestic assault and it's, it's a little touchy too, because it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a black man and the police. And given what yeah. we've gone through and talked about the last year, that brings a certain something to, to the forefront of our minds. But it's also who I believe to be a black woman who is the alleged victim in this case. And, you know, so. Yeah, that is an other added element. Yeah, it gets really intersectional really quick. And you know, I, I lean, obviously, in these cases, the, the data is overwhelming that we should lean toward believing women. There are so many blocks in place, both in, 
you know, the psychological dynamics of relationships and the legal process. And I mean, there are any number of hurdles that tilt things where, you know, it's pretty infrequent that it comes out that a, a woman is not telling the yeah. truth or, or the, you know, in this particular case that, you know, New York, as I understand it, is a state where uh, the police have to press charge. It's not up to the victim, yeah. the alleged victim. It's up to the police to make that determination. So, you know, that's the first instinct. And you have to be really aware of the fact that ahead of time that the discussion is going to be kind of misogynistic at times. You're definitely going to get readers and commenters who, you know, go right to innocent until proven guilty to the extent that they don't even think it should be reported on until there's, you know, a legal determination made, which is absolutely not the case. You know, if someone gets yeah, charges I mean, brought against them, it's news. It's yeah, and even it, even the the I think that's a really important thing to distinguish is even the the legal ruling. There's so much that could happen to yeah. influence that that it doesn't necessarily mean the person is you know entirely innocent or yeah. you know whatever. Everything we know about conviction rates with domestic assault and sexual assault, there are just so many barriers to those things resulting in a guilty determination. And, you know, obviously that's something that that's a podcast of its own. And I encourage people to, to read up on that stuff if they're, you know, if their eyebrows have come up at, at us saying that. Yeah, I, you're right in saying that that's a, my mind was just going to 5,000 different places of why yeah. people, you know, will take a, a plea. Uh, and a lot of it, it, so many variables, but, you know, finances being a, a major uh, factor. But Yeah, and <laughs> as I understand it, you know, I, I've never dealt with it personally in my life, but as I understand, it, you know, the psychological factors of the power dynamics in a relationship or, you know, even just like, if you go into a, a court case, knowing that the system is leveraged against you, like that might, you know, pressure you to, to certain outcomes. In this case, that, that the case we're talking about with a raptor is ongoing as we record this. So, you know, we haven't seen how that's played out, but we've certainly seen how the reporting around it and just the charges has played out. And this raptor has been playing during all that time. So you get, it's been a weird thing where, you know, there are people who I think just don't care and they want, you know, their sports separate and they're the stick to sports people when it's any kind of issue. And then there are people who on the other end of the spectrum feel like kind of like, like I'm sure there are, are women who their interest in the team or, or their interest in, especially that player has just been kind of undercut because they're being told implicitly that this is not a space where they're cared about. And then obviously there's a, a wide gray area in between of people who, you know, maybe used to like that player and don't anymore, or they want to wait and see how things play out. But in the interim, it's really uncomfortable. So that's, you know, it's a lot to navigate for, for everyone, I think on, on all sides. And the team hasn't handled it in my estimation, the, the best way they possibly could have. They've kind of, you know, on your side of things, they've shielded this person from having yeah. to, to talk yeah. about it in the interim. You, you read the statement and I, I'm looking through it through yeah. my lens and it's kind of textbook in terms of, you know, how we handle this to just, you know, mitigate as many damages as we can without actually dealing with it. And it's so prominently put on display because of all of the other social issues that the Raptors have been voiced for. You know, mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter being a massive issue that they put themselves behind. And so it looks kind of like night and day when you have domestic assault pending and this one response. And it's not the first one. So yeah, it's exactly. not, you know, they've had they had one with an assistant coach that it was actually never brought to court, but accusations were made publicly. Mm -hmm. um, they have had, you know, there was there was a player a couple of years ago who they cut immediately 
after the accusations came out, but that was also a player in their G League team, not their NBA team. Like the context was that there was no question of of guilt or admission or anything like that. It was straightforward. And then there were even a couple cases under this same front office of, you know, players who had those charges or dropped in the past. Uh, and again, back to our earlier point, like we know what what can go into charges being dropped sometimes. It, it's one of these weird things where like every like the people who don't care or want to support the the player instead of the the alleged victim will jump to innocent until proven guilty. And first of all, that's not that's for legal things, not people's yeah. opinion. But also the absence of a guilty verdict is not proof of innocence also. Like there's a there's a second side to that that needs to be understood. So it ends up being this, obviously these cases are very complicated and very sensitive. And this one, again, isn't resolved yet. So we don't know how it's played out. But from my position, it's uh, it's something you have to handle really delicately. And, you know, I don't, I don't really care to be sensitive or empathetic to the people who like just don't care and just want that not mixed with their basketball. Uh, but you certainly have to be sensitive to the people who it affects how they enjoy the team or consume your content. Or, you know, I'm sure it can be really triggering for people too to, you know, every time you turn on the game, you see this guy who you know has that going on. And if maybe that's happened to you or or maybe you're just sensitive to that topic in general, you know, so in my position, I'm certainly not writing glowing things about him or, or really focusing on him at all when he's playing well. And, you know, I think it's important to, leave the reminder fairly often that, hey, you know, player X, who, by the way, has this ongoing legal thing. Um, but I don't, it's one of those things where like, there's not a right answer and there's not a playbook on our side, really. And, and like, even the NBA, there's not, their precedent is very inconsistent in how they apply things like paid administrative leave and suspensions and and even media responsibilities. Cause like day to day players are supposed to be made available whenever so it's uh it becomes this kind of rich thing where there's there are so many things going on and i think you know i know we're running a little long right now and i think it's it's almost a great example to kick off your podcast because it it highlights just how quickly these kind of things can get messy with the different uh stakeholders i was was gonna say it's a perfect example of if we want to open up this conversation about getting a little bit more in this gray zone and sort of reconciling the two sides, well, that example is totally to the point of, you know, we we should be like empowering reporters to to do their jobs and and not, you know, as media relations and, and people that are sort of on the opposite side of that, we shouldn't be trying to like shield these people and not have them take accountability. We can do it in a way that's not, you know, necessarily defaming them and saying they can never play this game again. But holding them accountable. And, you know, I think back to so many examples in sport and I think Tiger Woods, that just was the first one that came to mind because that happened when I was a bit younger. And I just remember I loved watching Tiger Woods. And after, you know, his whole scandal happened, I, it was never the same watching him after. And I'll never know. None of us will ever truly know what happened in that relationship or in, you know, that situation. But as a viewer, I cared about the the person behind the athlete. And I think more, now more than ever, people do care about the people behind the athletes. And it's- Well, about- you know them more too, right? Like that's something that social media does and like highlight driven content is like, especially in sports, you get to know these people better. And I, I do think this is a good one to kind of kick off your podcast on. I, I It's unfortunate that like there's not a resolution to it yet because the, the big question 
whatever happens with, you know, the fact that this will be the fourth court hearing for it certainly suggests it's not a open and shut situation. And the player has been playing. But, you know, the big question now, and I think the big question that your podcast is going to focus on is, say there is a guilty verdict the next time or or, uh, an agreement that has some admission of guilt in it. You know, the big thing is, okay, what's next now, right? Because they've been playing this player. It's pretty clear they're not just going to cut ties with them. So how does that, how does the process of, of reconciliation or restorative justice play out from here? And I know that, you know, with your own story and some of the guests you mentioned you have lined up, there's going to be a lot of talk of, of how do you kind of, how do you take the steps to where, you know, you're given the space to kind of reclaim your own brand or, or your own story. So, you know, that's the big question with this case, with the person I cover, and I'm excited to to hear you you talk to people who've gone through that on Dirty Line. Likewise, yes. The, yeah, this couldn't have been a more perfect first episode. It set the stage so well. I want to hear about what assignments you're working on, what projects, what's next, like what's happening? I don't know. When is this going to air? That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, it should be within a couple of weeks. One okay. Weeks, I mean, yeah, it's mostly just, you know, business as usual. It's mid-season for the Raptors. The trade deadline's the end of March. So if you're a basketball fan and you want all those trades, trade rumors and trade scenarios and stuff. You, you can check out my stuff at The Athletic. But yeah, it's kind of just business as usual. Let's talk about, wait, the moose will be a good thing to end on. Because the, I want the moose. the moose with the tattoo and the and all that. Oh my gosh. That little guy? Crazy. Yeah, so tell the story it's, about that. <laughs> yeah, that's it's very silly. So um, I take written game notes during games. And the the championship season, I was doing this silly thing where... The like last guy on the roster is a guy I've always really liked. His name's Greg Monroe and his nickname is Moose. Uh, so I was like, you know, normally when a player comes in and they like note the different lineups that are playing, I'll just use the person's initials or their jersey number or something like that. Um, you know, like usually it's initials, but like Kyle Lowry and Kawhi Leonard had the same initials. So I had to change it up. Um, and sometimes just to be silly, like, for whatever, I can't even remember the reason, but like Terrence Ross, I used to just put a smiley face when he <laughs> in. Um, so with Greg Monroe, he was supposed to not play like ever. So I was like, you know what? I'll draw a little moose. And the drawing, I'm a terrible artist. So the drawings were really, really bad. And then what happened is like all the other Raptor centers kept getting hurt or traded. So he kept playing. He was playing like every game. So eventually I was drawing a moose every game and I would post it on Twitter and then at one point in the season, someone was like, oh, if the Raptors win a championship, you got to get that tattooed. And I was like, sure, if the Raptors win a championship, <laughs> I'll get it tattooed. And then the worst part is he got traded before the Raptors even won the championship. But I had said that I would do it. And like they played against him in the playoffs. Um, hey, you're good for your word. Yeah, I did <laughs> that it. That's a true testament to being good for your word. <laughs> yeah, like I, I feel like I can't really have like basketball tattoos because it's too, it's like wearing a jersey now. Like it's my job. It doesn't feel right. You know, that's sort of my commemorative. I covered the championship team. An incredible like accomplishment as a journalist. Like absolutely incredible. Kudos to you for making it from the on-deck circle to <laughs> the courtside NBA championship. Like that's incredible. Uh, And thank you so much for being the first podcast guest. I'm so excited to dig into more conversations like this. Again, this set the tone so good for the rest of this. So thank you, Blake. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to more episodes. 
Thanks for listening to today's episode of Dirty Laundry. Check out Blake's Raptors column online at The Athletic, which is also linked in the show notes to today's episode. Join me next time where I'll be speaking with Ashley Orr, Wim Hof instructor and cold exposure expert. 